Welcome to The Label Podcast, a show about disability, illness and difference. I'm Lucy. And I'm Alice. And that's Don't forget, in this episode, I might swear, Lucy might cry, and you can check out details of the trigger warnings on our website. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Labelled Podcast. Today is a very special episode um, for us because we have Simon Weston, who is our very special guest for this episode. Hello, Simon. Hello, both. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm tickety-boo, thanks. Yeah, very good. Good, very good. good. Um, so, Simon, you're here today to talk to us about your life and your time in the um, armed forces. So, for anybody who doesn't know about your story, Simon, could you um, sort of tell us a bit about yourself and things like that, please? Yeah, um, well, first of all, obviously, my name is Simon Weston. I, I grew up in South Wales. Uh, born in South Wales, but grew up in the armed forces with my parents in the RAF, uh, grew up in Singapore, um, spent some time in England, although, you know, I won't hold that against anybody particular in England. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, and then at the age of 16, I joined the army, I joined the guards, uh, was very fortunate to join the 1st Battalion Welsh Guards. Uh, we served in Berlin, Northern Ireland, Kenya, and uh, then the Falklands uh, from 16 to 20. Um, and by the time I was 20, my service career was over because I got injured. But I packed a lot in and had a great mm. time. But I then didn't realise went... it was that quick. Goodness me. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the military move very quickly if they have to. Mm. Uh, but we went to the Falklands. I was part of the second wave. The Marines and Paras had already gone. Um, we went in the second wave on board the QE2. Um, you know, that extreme luxury liner. But, um, <laughs> but they would have put the Marines and Paras on there, but they didn't think they could rough that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we went down. And the reason she was chosen was because she could carry the most amount of people and travel as fast as she could. She was the fastest vessel we had in our merchant or military fleet and also she was the the largest that could carry three and a half thousand men um so that was it we went down uh we got to the falklands um and then we were there for about a week got transferred onto a ship um because they they started us walking marching over the islands but the problem was with the march, our the, our sort of tractor kept getting bogged down with all our heavy kit. Mm. Um, so what they decided to do, uh, we wouldn't have made our objective on time. So they put us on board a ship uh, called um, HMS Fearless. And that went around to a place called Lively Island. And um, the weather conditions that night were horrendous. And we, we had contact with the Argentinians. We shot one aircraft out of the sky and the debris from that destroyed the other missile um, and the other aircraft then obviously got home. 
they took half the regiment in LSLs, which are small landing craft. You see them in films, you know, where they're in those open boats yeah. that look like just look like a big oblong. And mm. uh, you know, everybody gets very cold and wet. Um, well, that took about eight hours to travel eight miles in the freezing conditions. Don't ask me why they did what they did that night. But anyway, what it did mean was that everybody got to the end and they were starting to go down with hypothermia, which is extreme cold, mm. um, which will kill you if you're not careful. So they decided not to put the rest of us on them. And they took us back around to where we started and put us on board the Sagalahad, which was just a troop carrier, a vehicle carrier and troop carrier. Had very limited protection. And we were ordered to set sail. Well, she'll be, she'd have been already hit by a 500-pound bomb that didn't detonate. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were just removing it out of the ship when we got there. So they pulled it out of the side, just dropped it into what the sailors called the organ, yeah. which is the sea. Mm-hmm. They dropped it, and it's still sitting where it was dropped, right uh-huh. to this day. Um, but then they had to weld the hole up, which took a whole eight hours longer than they intended. Which meant we this was sailing. even. This was before you even got on the ship. Oh no, we were on the ship when you they were, were welding it. On the ship, it. and they were you were well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we transferred ships from the Fearless to the Sagalahad, mm-hmm. and then they had to remove it. Then they welded the hole up. Um, I met a guy in the toilet who said he was in the toilet when the bomb came through. He said <laughs> he was. I think he's still back. He. He was sitting in the first stall reading a newspaper, doing his business. <laughs> and he said a 500-pound bomb came right across and tore the top of his newspaper. Then he said to me, I bet you can't guess what I did with the rest of the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> there was no constipation there. I tell you now. <laughs> but anyway, so... They, they welded the hole and we set sail, but we arrived, you know, beautiful sunny days that are cold, two puffy clouds, but it's a bit breezy, but it's really chilly. You know, those beautiful days, those beautiful winter autumnal days. Well, that's what it was like. And um, we arrived in this place. We were there far too long. We were on board far too long. Nobody sent any vehicles to get us off the ship. And the Argentinians arrived and dropped 500 pound bombs on the ship. Killed 48 of my friends and colleagues. Um, I was the closest to the bomb to survive uh, and subsequently became the worst injured to come back from the Falklands. Um, worst injured, obviously, off the ship, but subsequently to come back from the Falklands. You know, they also tried bombing the hospital that I was in. Um, uh, you know, ultimately, you just got to say, look, it's war. Yeah. You know, the, clue, the clue's in the title. <laughs> you know, it's not meant to be pleasant. Um, no. You're not going to Disneyland, are you, really? <laughs> no, you I mean there's plenty of roller coaster rides in the weather, I'll tell you now. I uh, bet. So then after your accident, so so I mean, you say you're quite you were quite close to the bomb. So I mean how long did it take for, for emergency services and, and medical assistance to find you? Was it quite easy to find you or I mean, can you remember much of the aftermath? I remember it all, yeah. uh, unfortunately. Yeah, um, yeah no, uh, I ran out of the fire, tried to help a friend of mine who died in my arms, and then um, I made my way out, um, realising that I was very badly burned. 
and uh, you know probably would be dying if I didn't get out. So mm. I got out, uh, ran across the de- tank deck where there were bodies lying everywhere. They weren't dead; they were just lying down. Um, and everybody started to move like maggots, if you think of it that way. Yeah, yeah. And then I got to a doorway, and a, a great friend of mine, guy I joined the army with, Jimmy Salmon, helped save my life. And we joined the army together. He was best man at my wedding. Um, and I, I literally owe him my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, got to the top of the ship, um, and uh, then I got picked off by the Royal Navy helicopters, um, who took us to a community centre, which mm. got turned into what they call a triage centre, which is where they prioritise injuries. Mm. I was going into shock, so they knocked me out. Next time I woke up, I was blind. Um, so I didn't really know what was going on, but I was in a place called a Red and Green Life Machine by then. Um, and then we got taken onto a hospital ship, uh, regained my eyesight, and then... Um, they had to resuscitate me because my heart stopped. Uh, and then they cleaned my wounds with a brush. Um, it hurt. Well, yeah. I, I think it hurt. Um, <laughs> they give me 100 milligrams of pethidine. I don't know whether it hurt or not. I just I, I just didn't give a sod at that point in time. No, I, was so, I, I was so high, it was unreal. Um, <laughs> and then they, they, they took me up, uh, took us all up to Montevideo. Oddly enough, I've just recently connected with a guy on social media who I travelled back with. The first one out of, after really? 40 years that mm. I travelled back with, uh, a paratrooper who'd lost his leg. It got hit with um, a swordfish, which is a wire-guided missile. It hit a rock mm. and the blast off the rock took his leg off. I shouldn't um, I shouldn't make a joke, but I did immediately assume it was like a fish got blown out of the sea <laughs> following a bomb and it was just really <laughs> unfortunate coincidence where the sharp pointy bit just happened to go straight through his leg. Yeah. Unfortunately that's what you get when you when you talk to civilians, eh? Uh, <laughs> you, you you go from the severe and the critical to the pure. Uh, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no, this guy Grant, he's bonkers. He was so funny in hospital. Um we were we were in hospital together as well, so I got taken to a critical injury unit mm. where for severe burns and what have you. Uh, where they thought I was going to die anyway. Because um, I went from 18 and a half stone prop forward rugby player yeah. who was offered to be bought out of the army to play rugby. I went from that to just under eight stone in three weeks. And um, so I was critically ill. So Grant... I mean, there in... are some people who pay a lot of money to sort of learn how to do drop 10 stone in three weeks. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, Lucy being one of them, she's just said to me, <laughs> yeah, before, all the chocolate and Chinese. Yeah, before, I have been eating a lot of uh, chocolate and stuff yeah. over the lockdown diet, so that's, yeah. that's going this week. Yeah, <laughs> so um, so Grant was in, in the, the bay when I got uh, put into the main ward yeah. uh, after about 8 to 12 weeks, um, and uh, he they were contemplating taking off his other leg. Um which I do believe they did, or they took the leg off that was badly damaged. I can't remember quite, but he was funny. Oh, my Lord, he was funny. 
and uh, we we I met him again then when we went to rehab. Um, he was just a very yeah only a young fella. I was twenty. He was eighteen when he got injured, but oh, he was funny. Um, and and he's, he he was a kid with a lot of wise words, mm. and um, and I, I I had the chance to say to him uh, when I responded to him, I just said thank you, you know, because there was a lot of things he said to me that helped me, and he didn't know, and I'd never had the chance to tell him. No. Um, but yeah, it, so it's weird, it's yeah. weird, you know. Um, but anyway, we got to Montevideo, got on board the the, air, uh, the RAF aircraft. Yeah. And the plane was hurtling down the runway, getting to the point of no return. The nose was about to lift off the runway, and the engine fell out of the aircraft. Oh, my God. <laughs> so how on earth are you still alive? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's just... <laughs> I, I keep doing the lottery, and I've got this point now. <laughs> yeah. You're like I, a I've cat with a... nine lives. I was going. Yeah. I think I don't think the lottery's worth it, Simon. I think you've had all of your luck, haven't you? <laughs> well, I'm convinced of that as well. I just want to know who I'm giving all my money to. I might as well just give it straight to them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, we got back home eventually, um, and I got wheeled into a transit hospital at RAF Lynham, and my mother and my grandmother were there, and. Uh, our mum said to my grandmother, she said, oh, mum, look at this poor boy. And I cried out, hey, mum, it's me. And then she recognised my voice. Her face turned to stone. Yeah. And uh, she had to be taken away to calm her down because obviously she realised her son was never going to look the same. Mm. Um, and then I got taken up to Woolwich in south-east London where we had a military hospital. Mm. And... Um, and that's where it all began, really. You know, the film unit was there and filmed me coming off the helicopter. I had a few choice words for the film unit because I thought they were there to make a freak show, you know, mm. exploit the injured. Um, and then I got taken in, got given a bath, which took about four hours. It was so painful because because mm. of the engine falling out of the aircraft, I had my dressings on for about four or five days and they had welded to me. Oh, oh my God. Simon. So... <laughs> and I was in. So they, they kept filling me with painkillers to a point where I wouldn't die. Um, but I was in so much pain. And yeah, and then they put me on a thing called a low air loss bed, which is pillows of hot air, yeah. which stopped pressure sores. Mm. And then, um, yeah, I, they waited a week or so before they started operating. And then they started operating once the swelling had gone down from travel. And uh, they'd assessed what they could do and how much of it they could do. Mm. In you know, in one go, because mm. really, what the the object was then, because over half my body was open wounds, what they wanted to do was clear away all the infection. Yeah. Then what they wanted to do was to cover as much of my open wounds as possible to stop infection. Mm. And you know, if ever we've learned more about infection, even people who didn't care know about infection now yeah. after mm. the last eighteen months, you know, with COVID. <laughs> <laughs> or the vid, as my kids keep calling it. <laughs> the vid. The vid. Yeah, it's not COVID anymore, it's the vid. <laughs> but anyways, and uh, I was in hospital. Um, they saved my eyesight, so I can only thank them for that. Uh, they saved my life. I am so happy for that. Uh, I've had an awful lot of operations, spent the best part of six years in hospital on and off. Um, had roughly 95, 96, 97 operations, yeah. between five and 700 units of blood and blood products. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm just a very fortunate guy to be here. Yeah. You know, um, and I'd rather have had my injuries and the length of problem I had rather than like some of the other injuries I've seen. Um, because at least I can walk, at least I can use two arms, mm. you know, um, I can use two damaged hands. I've got very badly damaged hands, but at least I can use them. Mm. For people who've not got their arms or their legs or whatever, I mean, it's a totally different situation. You know, there have been thousands of people badly injured since my incident. Um, I just happened to have been the person that was available to film after Sir mm. Douglas Bader, who was a Second World War fighter pilot, who lost both his legs, yeah. um, made films about him and what have you. Yeah. Um, and then it just so happened he died, and then there was nobody really fell into that space. And then a couple of years later, I fell into that space. Yeah. And then I became the, the service person that everybody sort of associates with the military and uh, injury and such. But, you know, there, there are thousands of people. You know, I'm not the only guy. I just happen to be the the first guy after Douglas Bader to get acknowledged and recognised. So it was just timing. Just timing. How, how do you feel about being kind of, particularly in terms of the press? Like, I'm, I'm conscious, you know, you've told your story and sort of explained what happened to you here. And one of the things I really don't want to do is feed into that sort of salacious um all the gory details sort of and so i'm not going to ask you about some of the the physical issues that and things you've experienced because of your injury because i think the point i'm sort of getting to is the press has a tendency to do that i think for particularly for people with disabilities just in general it is that kind of freak show as you said about you know when you were met by the film crew how do you sort of feel how has that what's that experience been like for you being that person that the press goes to and do you feel like they they represent your story or do you do you feel sometimes still like everybody's kind of it's that voyeurism freak show element um no i i don't feel i feel the press have been absolutely fair overall I think they've been magnificent. They've um, they've respected my privacy when I've needed it. You know, if you want to enjoy what the media has to offer, um, then you've got to be prepared to give a bit. Mm-hmm. And like some celebrities who want to only give it when they want to, mm-hmm. um, but then they want to keep everything else private. It's it's a give and take. You know, it's it has to be a, like a relationship. You can't just take. You have to share. And I've never, I've never sort of rebuffed the media. I, I have said no a couple of times, um, but that's because I wasn't relevant to what they were trying to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But no, I think the media have been absolutely brilliant with me. There've been a few incidences, but you know, there always will. And there's one or two journalists who don't like me because they just don't like me. Um, mm-hmm. Even though they've never met me, they just decided they don't like me. Uh, why should I be in the public eye? Mm-hmm. Listen. I didn't choose it, it chose me. Mm. Um, yeah. I just was very fortunate that I I could do it and I could play the game that was needed to be played. I mean, mm. but everything I've ever been is honest. Yeah. I've never I've never embellished what happened to me. I've never undersold it. I've tried to be as honest as I can without, as you say, going into the, as you say, Alice, without going into the voyeuristic side of it and the 
and the gory. I mean, look, there are two things I take on the gory aspect is, first and foremost, what have you ever done to me that means that you deserve to be given nightmares? Mm. And also, what have you done to earn the right to know about the final yeah. moments of my life and mm. my friends' lives? So there's two parts to it. One, that you've never hurt me and you don't deserve those nightmares. And the other one is, you haven't earned the right to know about the final minutes of my friends. Mm. You know, if it was mm. one of their family ask me or one of their one of our friends, if they asked me and I knew, I would tell them. But I won't do it. I won't share it. No. It's, not for other, it's not for public consumption. Of course it's not, no. That's, that's, really, I, that's really moving to hear you say that because I think that there's a there is a lot of you know demand from the press for people to hear those kind of salacious stories and yeah, so it's really sensational yeah kind of. yeah sensational yeah. yeah you know that's a really a really nice and kind of moral and meaningful stance to sort of take you know you you don't deserve this on either side of it you don't deserve the horror but you also don't deserve kind of what it means emotionally this isn't just something to stare at and be shocked by there's so much more to it and I think as well in the wider sense of di disability as a whole you know that there's a big thing a lot of disabled people are like uh, don't want to discuss their disability or what's wrong with them you know we often get the question well what's wrong with what happened to you then what's wrong with you then and I think that also falls into the category of, you know, you don't get to know, you know, you don't get to know what happened to me mm. in in great detail just to satisfy your curiosity. Yeah. For then you to go off and wander around Tesco's and carry on doing your shopping. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I, I don't that. mind if, if people ask me a question, I will yeah. answer it. Yeah. And especially children, because yeah. the one thing I don't want is to have children continually running around staring at me. Because no. that, just, that just gets on my nerves. Mm. Um, so I'd rather explain to them, look, I was a soldier, I was on board a ship, I got blown up by the enemy, um, and I got very badly burned. And if you play with matches in the house or you go mm. near the cooker where mummy or daddy's cooking, you could end up being badly burned. So, so be a good boy or girl. Yeah. You know, try to explain to youngsters in a way that they understand and is relevant to their lives. I don't yeah. want to horrify, you know. Um, We'll go back to the disability side of it. Look, you may have an impairment. It doesn't mean to say that you don't have the ability to do the same as Elon Musk or to be the next Amazon creator. You just need the imagination. Mm -hmm. You just mm -hmm. need the hard work and the drive. You know, we are limited by our own imagination. We are limited by our own drive. Yes, opportunity counts a lot for a lot of things. Mm. But beyond that, you are limited by your own mind. And yes, there is always going to be physical and mental barriers that we all need to climb. And whether you've got impairment or not, it doesn't matter. We all have them. And I know thousands of people who've never had a knock in their life, may have had a bruise on a football field or, or a <laughs> hockey pitch or something. Yeah. But they've never pushed themselves beyond what they've done. No. But they've they've been good at what they do. It doesn't mean to say they haven't been good. They just haven't expanded themselves. So we're only limited by our imagination. And there are great philosophers and great scientists have said that these things. Not me. I mean, I'm just echoing what they're saying. <laughs> um, but you, you've just got to, in life, you've just got to believe in yourself. Yeah. You know, 
I'm fortunate enough to know Dame Tanny Gray Thompson. And had she just accepted the progressive problems and illness she had, which created a disability, she would have never become the great wheelchair athlete she became. She would have never become a dame. She would never be in the House of Lords. And she wouldn't be standing up for people's rights who can't defend themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're limited by only your imagination or your ability to drive yourself on. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have one type of impairment, it doesn't mean to say you can't do something else. You know, I've looked at the, 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 the Special Olympics. Why it's called the Special Olympics is the Olympics for people with impairment. That's what it is. Not as catchy, though, is it, Simon? Not oh, okay. <laughs> but, I mean, at the end of the day, that's the way I see it anyway. And I look at yeah. some of those people and I think, yeah. wow, just <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, I see people in wheelchairs that put the shot. Mm -hmm. how, how the hell they don't fall out of that bloody chair, I'll never know <laughs> in my life. I, you you know, must have such serious, like, core strength. Like, I, I don't know any... 100% able-bodied person who has the core strength to be able to do that so how you build you know your core strength when perhaps you there's a chunk of your body that doesn't work as people you know as expected I mean geez it's yeah. I mean that's the thing I always say about about Olympian the thing about the, the the special olympics the paralympics is that a lot of people go oh you know look these are the the special disabled people you know and I sort of, I always want to say, yeah, but you don't say that about, like, look at, look at the Olympians, like look the at, regular non Those yeah. people are like above and beyond your average. That's not, you know, Joan who works in Tesco <laughs> and has a McDonald's for breakfast every day. She couldn't do that. Yeah, oh, she could if she put her effort into it. Well, uh, yeah, exactly. If she, start, if she cut down on the McDonald's breakfast, then maybe Joan might be able to, you know, listed all them can of beans over the checkout might stand in yeah. good stead. Or if, or if, or if they, if they cut back on the prosecco in Chinese after they've, after yeah. they've had the vaccination. Not Thank that I pointed any fingers, Lucy. <laughs> Thank you, Simon. Yeah, yeah. I thought we were friends. <laughs> <laughs> You've known me too long. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I mean, how, I don't know what your feelings are, Simon, about the term inspiration and hero and that kind of thing. Does that sit? well with you is it is it something that doesn't bother you or does it is it is it is it part and part and parcel of being a high profile military um, serviceman in the I, press i think you you've got to look at it this way loose heroes are what other people make yeah you 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 don't go around calling yourself a hero and you don't call yourself an inspiration if you inspire other people to take on challenges and make changes in their life, then undoubtedly you are an inspiration, whether you like it or not. Hero, um, that's for other people to say and other people to decide. I'll not ever use that in a sentence about myself or anything to do with me. Other people I know, mm -hmm. I would definitely use that about them. That's what I was just going to ask you is who, who are your heroes who inspires you? Oh. There are lots of people and so many and probably too many, too numerous to mention mm. all of them. But, you know, there's a lady called Dame Felicity Peak, who was the first lady, a woman lady, a Commodore of the Women's Royal Air Force. A very good friend of mine, a guy called Noel McConkie from Northern Ireland, first police officer to be 
blown up with a remote control yes. device. Yes. Lost I've read about all him. three limbs. Mm. He lost all three limbs. Um, he's a big friend of mine. And, you know, and, and then there's the guys I served with, uh, Jimmy Salmon, as I've said. All my children are named after my, my personal heroes. Oh, that's yeah. So, um, you know, they, they have a name that Lucy and I chose, and then they have a name... Not, not this, Lucy. Can I, can, I, can I just point out, yeah, he's talking about his wife, Lucy, not me. I don't think that was children's name. <laughs> so, we, sorry, we sorry, are, Mrs. Weston. Yeah. Would you like to double-check and see what Lucy would think? Yeah, no, I, I'd be swiftly arrested. You mean, my oldest <laughs> son is... Th- my oldest son is 30. I mean, I'd be very swiftly arrested. Um, but I, my, the people I'm most impressed with are everyday people. Mm. You know, not people who are projected into the spotlight because that's where they are, whether they wanted to be there or not. Like, I didn't particularly want to be in the spotlight, but that's what happened. Mm. Um but the people who inspire me and impress me are people who get up every day and they have a whole raft of things to deal with, whether it's children that have issues, whether they have issues in their own life, whether they are working hard for somebody else, whether they work 24-7 at food banks, whether they are... Oh, God, there's so many things, whether it's to do with the environment, whether it's education. You know, there are people that work even in government you know, just because they're involved in the political bubble, don't write them off for being absolute inspirations for making a difference. Mm. Like, like Tani Gray Thompson, you know I mean, mm. an inspiration, you know. Um, so you, you just have to look at lots of people and what we don't know when we go down the road is what's their backstory. You know, never judge anybody just because of the way they look or they dress or the way that they 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 act. Have a look. You know, everybody has a backstory. Mm. So before you judge, stop and think about your own life and think how difficult or how problematic or how issues have crept up in your life. And think every other person could have that or more or worse. Some mm. people may have it better, you know. Um, there's, there's none of them, not even the politicians or the actors and actresses. They all start off the same as me and you, somebody wiping their bum, putting on a nappy. I mean, everybody starts the same way. <laughs> yeah. So from that point on, they're not going to have a life that much different to yours, unless they brought up an extreme wealth, never know any issues, never have any problems. But then they never know how to talk to ordinary people because they've never been brought up around that. So mm-hmm. that in itself carries its own problems and stigmas. So, you know, never judge people. You know, uh, this is why I don't understand hate in any shape or form no. around what you see. If I, I remember I met a, a young man um, after I got injured. He was a little bit older than me, but he was still a young fella. And um, he was cutting around in a lotus and he had a big sheepskin coat on looked like a flock of sheep the size of it <laughs> and um but he'd had a heart and lung transplant and he was lying in the hospital bed and this guy was a devout racist a devout really? racist oh yeah 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 member of the the old school national front you know which hated everything that wasn't 
British stereotypical white and Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're but, talking the 80s, aren't we? Which is a, was a bit, yeah. a big, yeah. big time for that sort of admirable behaviour. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they were dreadful, those people. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, they just hated because they had nothing else better intelligent to think about. Yeah. Um, but he was lying in hospital bed dying, is the point of the story. He had, mm -hmm. a, he had a heart and lung disease and he was dying. Mm. And lo and behold, he was waiting for a donor. And we've all heard how hard it is for people with kidneys mm. to get a donor to match. Well, anyway, he lay in bed. And there was a car accident right outside the hospital. Jeez. And there was a perfect match. Perfect match. You are joking. No. And they gave it to him. And yeah. the, the rider is, the kicker is, yeah. it was an Asian gentleman. <sighs> I don't know whether he was Indian or Pakistani, mm. but he was, he was one of those, or Bangladeshi or something. Yeah. Did they but he tell was him? Oh, yeah. They told him who it was that it's. Oh, they told him they told him generically who it was, you know, but it was. Yeah, they can't give you names, can they? But they can say this came from a Asian it, it male have, or whatever. Yeah. Or, yeah. It wouldn't have been too hard to find out because it happened no. outside the hospital. Right. Okay. So you know, the, there couldn't have been too many Asian gentlemen who died outside the hospital that donated <laughs> their heart and lungs. No. Um, but this guy was alive because of that. Yeah. And. And I was watching a rugby match, watching my local village rugby team play. And uh, he just happened to be supporting the other side. So I asked him, I said, how do you feel now then? And he said, how can I feel? He said, I now realise whatever's on the outside is, you know, we're all the same on the inside. Yeah. And, yeah, and that's it. Mm. You know, all these people who hate people just because they want to hate them. Those people have blood in their veins that could save your life. Yeah. They have organs in their bodies that, if donated, may save you or your child's life, you know, or somebody you love or care about outside of that immediate family. So don't just go around with hating people willy-nilly. There are people on the planet you have every right to dislike or hate yes. if they've done something to dislike or hate them for. Yeah. You know, there are plenty of mass murderers. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I can say without any fear or feeling, I hate Adolf Hitler. Well, <laughs> I don't think that's particularly controversial either. Oh, no. <laughs> I have to put a trigger warning in there for like some but, sort of disclaimer. <laughs> but, but the thing is, he gave me permission by his actions, by yeah, his deeds, by his words. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and there are people that give you permission to hate them by their actions. I mean, you know, dare I say, Mr. Trump, <laughs> you know, he has given everybody every right to dislike him. Yeah because of his actions and his words and his, the division he's caused amongst people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's, we'll accept that there are people that give you permission and, and that's all that's necessary. But everybody else, give them the chance, you know, give them the chance to become this unlikable. Mm. You know, give them the chance. So treat everybody you would as you want to be treated. If they're horrible, then, you know, have a look at what they're doing. Maybe they're horrible because something's gone really tragically wrong that day. Yeah. You know, and it's we just, all Maybe know they're just having a bad day rather than a... Well, we've all had days where somebody's died or something's happened or a dog's been run over or, you know, anything that could really throw you a real curveball. Mm -hmm. But it's not your normal persona. 
Yeah, no. You know, I, I, I offer everybody the same thing. My trust and my hand when I meet you, my respect, but they're yours to lose. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can lose them over a lifetime or you can lose them straight away. Can I just say, Simon, when I met you for the first time, it was a, it was a good few years ago now, um, and it was f- through something I was doing for a work project, and the, somebody said to me, "Oh, you're going to meet you're going to meet Simon Weston," and I said, "The the the Simon Weston," and said, yeah, I was like, "What do you want me to go and meet Simon Weston?" <laughs> and they just said, "You know, I think." You're the you're the you're the best person for the job, really. So I went, and I was in I was incredibly nervous because I knew, like I knew about Simon. I know I know of I know Simon's story and all that kind of thing. And it wasn't it that was, I was nervous. It was huge news, Simon, and and the aftermath of what happened to you was yeah. all over the news when me and Lucy were there. Oh, you know, we we were right about that age to kind of go. To, to just be, be beginning to kind of comprehend and understand, I think, what... Um... People my age go, oh, who's who's to Simon Weston? I just go, read a, will you read a book, please, or something? <laughs> like, um, I mean, my, my husband didn't recognise your name, but then when he saw the picture, he went, oh, that guy! But yeah, <laughs> yeah everybody, everybody knows who you are, um, of our generation, I think, certainly. So, so when when I was sort of, you know, you're going to meet Simon Weston, I thought I was like, oh, okay, he's, you know, and uh, but I consider mine and your friendship, Simon, to be one of the 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 most. I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. It's the, the one of the most. I feel very privileged to be able to call you my friend, um, and I, I would never disrespect you I mean I you know I was brought up to be a nice person and so what happened Luce what happened but it it, there is you know you just you just and I as soon as I met you within five seconds I was like it's fine everything's fine he's just a normal guy and your sense of humor you were so kind to me you know you never made me feel like it wasn't a i'm i'm better than lucy situation it was a it was a you know let's listen to what lucy's got to say about this and and you were very respect because you know some some celeb celebrities i say in you know in like you you meet famous people who get like do you not know who I am? And it wasn't that I was worried that that was going to happen because I didn't think for a second it would. But there are, you know, there, you do meet some people, don't you, sometimes that will pull pants a little bit. Mm. But there was none of that when I met you. And I came away from that first meeting thinking, I can't, I can't believe I get to call Simon Weston a friend. And it is one of the greatest, you know, I talk to people now, they go, how do you do Simon Weston? It's a great dinner party story, mm. Simon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh no! I mean, you know, always, always treat people with kindness, with yeah. compassion, and with respect. You know, everybody has a, has a point or a, a, a or something very valuable and honest to say. And back in the day, when when my name was much bigger than it is now, um, you know, you got to realise that. 
people can be slightly overawed by that persona rather than the person. And when you realise that the person is just very, very ordinary and nice and brought up in the same way you've been brought up, then it, it makes it so much easier. Um, and ultimately, I mean, I've had so many acts of kindness put my way, mm. then being kind with other people is never a difficulty. The only time it's a difficulty is when people become rude or snotty. And, you know, that happens to me. If it happens to me, what's it like for other people? You know, um, and people try to be clever. You know, they try to think that they are smart or they're good at this. And ultimately, all they are are buffoons. Yeah. You know, well, I, you know, I don't do, I don't do, I don't do sarky and clever. That, that's just pathetic. Yeah. Um, you see, that, that's all I've got going for me is sarky and clever. <laughs> so. Yeah, some people carry it off. Thank you. <laughs> I listened to your story, Simon. It's like when I rang you originally to talk about the, um, you know, coming onto the podcast and recording a podcast with us, and you asked me how I was, and I said, oh, I'm struggling a bit with shielding and not going out and seeing everybody, and you told me a story that put everything into perspective. I was like, yeah, okay, I'll shut up. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll shush, because the story that Simon, I mean, you was you told you said to me that when you were in was it recovery you were in? I was for in your, the hospital, yeah. Yeah, for your with your burns. Mm. So um and nobody could could come in and, and touch you, you couldn't have a hug mm. with anybody, could you at all? For about two months, yeah. I was being burying this because I was riddled with infection. Mm. Um and I, I was eating antibiotics by the bucket load. Mm -hmm. uh, which were great because they they dealt with the internal bugs, but they couldn't deal with the external. So as soon as they were able, they stuck me in a bath. Um, and that was for about two months. And my hand was sewn to my groin to give me a palm and my right hand. Um, but everything that I touched had to be sterilized or incinerated. Mm -hmm. And then when they'd separated my hand from my groin, which left me with a great big scar and open wound in my in my belly um they then bathed me in a thing called hydrochloros and hydrochloros is a pink fluid it's industrial bleach disinfectant Whoa. and that was to kill all the bugs on the outside of me so you know it, it was a really difficult time mm. really difficult time so i kind of get what it's like to be isolated i kind of get what it's like to be lonely but you know when you're only the only people who touch you for two months, are uh, nurses doing your dressings or somebody helping you go to the loo, mm. um, which is, unfortunately, when you're a young man or young woman or whatever, even older, it, it's it's almost dehumanising. Mm. I mean, it's not, they, they're compassionate, they do it with the greatest of, of compassion, but at the end of the day, it, it can be, you know, um, and it's not pleasant. It isn't. You know, so I had all that going on. But look, I'm here to tell the tale. You know, I'd rather be able to talk about it and make it relevant to other people's lives and say it will get better. Mm -hmm. It will move on. It doesn't have to remain the same. That story as well is, you know, you you had to go through that isolation for your own safety. If you hadn't gone through that, you wouldn't have survived. You would have spread infections amongst other people and amongst yourself across your body and it would have killed you and so it is I think that's the thing that people 
who don't necessarily abide by you know government legislation and the shielding and things like that is is that's the important thing to recognize is by doing that you're saving lives and you know you had to go through it in hospital but it saved your life yeah absolutely other people had to obey the rules Mm. because i couldn't get out of bed so other people came in to see me or wanted to come in to see me, but they couldn't. Mm-hmm. No. Um, and there was only two at a time. I remember when I was being barrier nurse, the Welsh Guards came to play rugby at the hospital. It was most of the boys in the team were still mm. guys I'd played with. Mm. And um, they wanted to come in and see me. And they said to the, mm. the major on the ward, they, they called him sister, which didn't go down very well. <laughs> he didn't like that. Um, <laughs> But they said, can we take him out to see the game? And they said, no. And they said, but it's all right, we'll carry the bed out. Because it was like about 45 of the boys. <laughs> and they said, no, you can't take him out. It's as simple as that. So they came back to see me after they'd won the game. And um, But yeah, it just made me laugh. I enjoyed it, just seeing the boys. <laughs> you know, They were so funny. But, and... Um, and- did it kind of make you was you know did it kind of bring home to, to you the fact that you know people can be kind you know because when you're going through that and they wanted to see you but then they were making effort to to visit almost even if it was at a distance did it make did it restore your faith in in humanity and human kindness because I think it would do me no not really because they were my friends anyway yeah yeah. Um, and and we'd all been to war together, and they mm-hmm. were very fortunate to come back. Um, but it was just, I was just squeaky. I was just their mate. I was mm. just the the boy in the bed. You know, they just <laughs> they just wanted to spend a bit of time with their mate. That's all it was. Yeah. Um, and I see them now, and you know, the the banter is still as brutal. It's still as rude, as irreverent. Um, they take no prisoners. Um, I wouldn't expect them to, you no. know, I don't, I don't want them to because that means that something special is, and I'm different and I'm not, I'm the same guy, mm-hmm. same guy I always was, just sort of older, hopefully a little bit wiser, not too much, a little bit more mature, no, I don't want to mature a bit, a maturity <laughs> is, that's, that's, that's well too over, overrated, that maturity, <laughs> you know. So um, when you came out of hospital, Simon, and, and they said, right, you can go home, how was it adjusting to life as a, you know, somebody who was no longer in the in the military? Um, was You know, because I hear well, people... Somebody who was no longer in the military and was now had, a you know, an acquired disability, something you never had an experience previously. Um, it took a heck of a lot of learning um, because... If you if you grow with a disability, or you've had it from birth, um, and I keep using Tani uh, Tani Gray as a, as a point, but her she she was able to walk to start with, but then she became disabled as she went on. Mm. And the way I look at it is that you know, for for a young man or a young woman, if you become disabled after having had a very active life you have a lot of learning to do because I'm still doing things today for nearly 40 years on that I didn't realize I could do. And I've tried Mm. loads of things, but I'm using my hands for more now than I did 40 years ago. Mm. It's a learning curve. When you're a child, 
you do those things because it's just natural to try everything. Mm. But as an adult, you get into a habit very quickly of doing things a certain way. Yeah. And then you forget to try and explore other things as well. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I'm not, that's just not being clever. That's just being a, a human, being an adult. <laughs> um, and, and not exploring some of the things that you should explore. And this is why being childish is very, very important. Um, and not childish in debate, not childish in your attitude to people, but childlike in your way you, you respond to life's difficulties, mm. you know. Give everything a go. And if it doesn't work, if it's impossible, then done. If it's improbable, you've got a chance. Yeah. If, say, people always, that's improbable, that. No, it, well, that means there's a chance. Mm. It might work. you just got to find a different way of doing it. Mm. You know, as I once said to, to Terry Wogan when I was on a show with him, he said, well, what's the difference? I said, well, what I used to do with one hand, I now have to do with the other. <laughs> don't, don't go there. Don't go there. <laughs> Stop leading me up these paths, Simon. <laughs> I thought I was going to be the one that was a problem. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, it is, though. I mean, that's all it is. It's just a new road of discovery. Um, and if you can accept yourself mm. as yourself, if you can like who you are, the most important thing is to like who you are. Don't don't go into that world of love. If you love who you are, you probably forget what it's like to care about other people because you're too involved with yourself. But if you like who you are and you like your contribution to life, you want to do more, you have aims, you have ambitions, but you don't want to exclude other people, but you want to try and get the best out of yourself. The more you make those efforts, the better life will be. And I always say to young people, and especially aim this at young men as well, young boys in school, I say, you know, guys, like who you are really like who you are because one day you could be in a relationship where there could be two of you in that relationship that don't like who you are you know <laughs> don't, don't, don't get caught up in 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 disliking you because you know and, and i am mad at young boys because what people don't realize is there's more young men take their lives than anybody else mm, yeah. um for whatever reason you know and and i, I just want people to like who they are you know if you put, if you give the world your greatest contribution and it's not enough, that's fine because you gave it your best. But if you, if you struggle or you don't give it your best, you know, then the options are shutting down for you. Um, and and you, you're never going to be happy with who you are. And that's what it's all about. Just be happy with who you are. Look, there are things we can't stop and we can't change. And there's absolutely nothing in your rear view mirror you can do anything about. Right? Everything mm. is in the headlights of your vehicle. Look to the future. Plan for the future. You're in control. You're the one driving it. Mm. But if you give in to everything else, you will never, ever take that vehicle where you want it to go. You won't turn right or left at the right time. You won't get to the roundabout of life and decide which junction you're coming off at. You are the one in charge. So stop looking in the rearview mirror. There's nothing in there that's going to help you for tomorrow. Mm. So, you know, I, I've always said this. Take the lessons of life to the future with you, not the baggage. Mm. Mm. The yeah. baggage is too heavy, too cumbersome. It'll weigh you down and you will spend more time arguing about trivia. And we listen to it all the time on TV. People arguing about trivia and about things that 
they're all Facebook experts on. You know, I'm, I'm sick and tired of watching the media on, on telly and I'm, I'm waiting for them to say, and here we are. We now have our Facebook panel of bar, <laughs> barroom professors who are going to tell us all about And we're all experts on yesterday. Joan from, from Tasco has made an appearance on the Facebook panel for BBC News. <laughs> exactly. How, how many experts on, on the vid? The vid makes it sound like some trendy Channel 4 show. It really does, doesn't it? Yeah. The, the, oh, he's off today. He's got the flu. <laughs> you know, nobody's calling it influenza. It's the flu. So this is the vid, right? So we've had the flu. We've got now. We've got the vid. Right? <laughs> but um. The, the fact of the matter is, you know, there are so many people that are experts 24 hours after the, an, an announcement about statistics and everything else. And the fact of the matter is, it's easy. It's easy to be a left-wing comedian. It's mm. easy to be a critic. It's very hard to have an answer. It's impossible to be a right-wing comedian. You mm. know, because instantly you become a right-wing comedian, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're everything else whether you are or you're not, just because you disagree with the left side of life. But to be a left, left-wing left comedian, all you have to do is criticise everything that is done by a government. That's all you have to do. If it's not what you want to see or what you like, then it's so easy to be left-wing about everything. Because mm. nothing that the people at the top do is ever going to be enough or good enough. You know, it's like being a bodybuilder. You know, you can... You can go into the gym and lift weights the same as everybody else, but you've got to stick steroids in yourself because whatever you've achieved is never going to be enough. So you take extra and extra and extra, and all you're doing is being a critic of your own self. And, you know, how hard is it to make a good decision when you're dealing with things you didn't know anything about 12, 18 months ago to then try to rectify it and give people advice on how to look after themselves? And as Alice said, all you have to do is obey the rules, do the best, save everybody else. Mm. Because by not spreading infection, by me staying in a hospital bed and not complaining about it, not, well, I won't say not complaining about it. I was going to um, say, because I think, you know, you'd be well within your right to complain, to be honest. I would be, I would be crying, whinging. <laughs> yeah, well, I was only whining because there was three channels on the telly, you know. <laughs> You know, now we've got 150 channels of rubbish. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, but it, you didn't get that much live sport. This is where my love of cricket comes from. Albeit that, you know, England, one minute they hit brilliance, next minute it's disaster. Um, but I, I, I love cricket because it's, it's such a long game. And when you're in hospital... <laughs> You know, You've got hours and hours to kill. Yeah, six hours of a day, you know, and then if you're lucky, they get extra hour play. Um, so, you know, it, but it, it's true and it, it's what it was for me. There must have been times, Simon, where when, you, you know, you came back from the hospital and you were at home and the reality must have set in. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be human if you didn't sort of go down a... The, the the darker side of the, you know, what your life was and what it is now kind of thing. That comparison. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? The, the yeah, comparison. depression. 
yeah. no depression, post-traumatic stress, which wasn't diagnosed. No. Um, and in truth, yeah. you, you couldn't have had post-traumatic stress until 1987, I think it was, wow. and that was midnight on the 1st of January. So were, so, you, ever, were you ever diagnosed with post-traumatic stress? Eventually, uh, or? No. 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 I was left to, left to my own devices for the mm. depression. Um, it was only because of my mother. Um, and my mother was a psychiatric nurse. Mm -hmm. So um, she had an insight into mm. into the things that were wrong. But I did. I, I had deep depression. I was suicidal. Um, I was drinking way too much. I was drinking more in a day than most people could drink a week. I was eating huge amounts. My weight ballooned. I was having a real problem, a real, real problem. And it took me a long time to fully get over it. But I, I fortunately was able to because of other things and circumstances. And, you know, I went to New Zealand and Australia and went to find myself, really. And then I went to, to, to live in Liverpool and set up a charity with a guy. And I met my wife up there. Uh, and And that's when my life really changed because I had somebody in my life that, wanted to get to understand me, not just mm -hmm. get to know me, but to understand me as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's, n there's not enough emphasis put on growing together. You know, I, mm -hmm. I grew a, a great deal more because of my wife. Um, she, she changed a huge amount in my world. And then subsequently we had three children and uh, now we've got two grandchildren. Um, you know, and mind you, if I'd had my second child first, I wouldn't have had any of them. <laughs> yeah, what a stress and strain. <laughs> He's, he still is. Um, <laughs> but more for my wife. Um, but he lives in Amsterdam. Um, but my oldest son, he's got a lovely wife and two beautiful children. Um, and I mean, they're the apple of our eyes, as it is for so many grandparents. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I've got a daughter who's, you know, she's she's in a relationship, you know. But dare I say, the black sheep of the family is my daughter because, well, he's in the RAF and I was in the army, and that's just, <laughs> just not acceptable. You know what I, mean? I um, thought. I, I, you'd said quite early on that both of your parents were in the armed forces. Do you think, ha, have any of your kids gone into the armed forces? And do you think no. your decision to go into the forces came from your parents? Uh, no, um, my, my children, my daughter was, she's a very fine shot. She joined the cadets um, and yeah, she's a really good shot. She's a better shot than the boys. <laughs> um, and, uh, but no. She's the only one who showed any marginal interest in that side of life. Um, but the boys, no, um, they didn't look at the military as a as a way away from Wales. They didn't look at the military as um, as as the right thing, you know. No. Um, but then again, I mean, they weren't looking at it with rose-coloured spectacles either, because they'd seen me and lots of my other That's friends. That's what I was just going to yeah. ask. Yeah. Yeah, and my friends who'd had injuries as well. Yeah. Um, Whereas so, do you think because your parents had been in, were in the military, you, you had that more rose-coloured uh, view of the military before you joined? No, I joined the military because I'd got into trouble as a youngster. Um, <laughs> so I, I was a bit of a sort of, 
wayward youth at the age of 14. Um, I wasn't a bad, bad lad or anything like that, but I did have a court appearance. And uh, I just, I, I didn't want to be that person. I wanted to be no. somebody that I could look at and respect. Mm. Um, and, and I'd taken that away from myself. And, and also I embarrassed my mother, you know, um, and that's something that uh, I will never forgive myself for. Uh, I embarrassed her because she was a district nurse and her son um, had stepped off the path, you know. Mm. So the military sorted me out. Best thing I ever did. Don't regret joining. Don't regret the things I did. I uh, I accept that that, that bad things happen, mm. you know. Um, and you know, you, there are two two rules you have to accept about being in the military. The first rule is that young people get injured and killed, and the second rule you have to accept is there's nothing you can do about rule number one. Mm. You know, and that's the job. That is the job. Um, you don't want it to happen. You don't want to happen to you or any of your friends. But at the end of the day, my grandfather said one thing to me. He was advancing to contact when he was in the army in the Second World War, mm. and he looked. He was talking to his friend. He looked around. that looked back again, and there was just a pair of smoking boots. Oh, my life. And all he said to me was, all I could think was, thank God it was him and not me. Yeah. And no matter how close your friends are, that's where you have to really put your head and say, thank God it was them and not me. Mm. You know, you, you, you can't stop things from happening, and things will go wrong. But it's not about what goes wrong in your life. It's what you're prepared to do about it. That's what really matters. Um, and you're two perfect examples. You both have your your impairments, but you, you make the best of your lives. You do the best for you you can. And you do the best for the people in your lives. And and that's all you can be expected. You know, that's the minimum you can expect. But if, if you decided to go off and become an astrophysicist or a rocket scientist or whatever you've decided to become, if, and all of these things are within our capabilities, it's just whether you want it or you believe in it or you find that particular area of life comfortable, easy, whatever. But if you choose to become a guitarist or a saxophonist or you decide to become a painter, you know, there's nothing stopping you doing all of these things. The only thing that stops you is your own imagination, is your own belief in yourself and your desire to learn. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's like losing weight. You know, losing weight is hard. It it's easy to put it on, very hard to lose it, but it's about consistency, losing a pound a week, um, you know, and just being a bit more disciplined. And you only lose weight by by cal calorie deficit, you know. It's however many calories you take in, if you burn up more, then you will lose weight. It's an absolute guarantee. Simon, no I think I'm going to have you just on speed dial in my pocket but when i just need, just need a bit of a boost <laughs> excuse me can i have five minutes while i call Simon western please yes <laughs> yeah just so you can have a boost <laughs> yeah. not to eat chocolate <laughs> <laughs> leave it alone lucy leave it leave it <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is not a boost time <laughs> simon towards the end of a recording we um we always give our guests a bit of space to sort of promote anything that they're involved with. I know you're heavily involved with a lot of charities and to list them all, we'd be here until like 
2025, I think. Um, but is there anything in particular you want to highlight um, as part of this episode that we could perhaps link to on our website? Yes, please. There's mm -hmm. a charity that I'm, I'm president of, El Presidente. <laughs> you know, it makes me sound really important. All it is, <laughs> it's an on honorary role, which I am so privileged to be a part of. Um, and the, the, the charity is called Deborah. Yeah. Um, Deborah is a charity which deals with a terrible life-limiting condition called epidermolysis pilosa. It's to do with skin, and it's where babies are born without skin on parts of their body. Um, sometimes they might have, to have skin on the whole part of their body, maybe just on their face. Um, skin goes the, down the throat and up the other end, up your back passage. So what happens is this terrible condition causes blistering, causes extreme pain, um, causes infection. And a large amount of people don't get past 35, 40. Um, there's, there's, there are rare cases that have got up 60. But at the end of the day, the one thing that happens guaranteed is they all live their lives in pain, mm -hmm. in discomfort. But on top of that, we've all had sunburn, and I don't want to trivialise the, the itch, but when you get sunburn, you get blistered, and it itches like heck, and you start to scratch it and make it sore or even bleed. Well, their skin is, is rice paper thin, mm -hmm. and it will blister and bleed doesn't matter what mm. they do. If they scratch it, it's going to blister and bleed, which starts the whole cycle again. Mm. And um, we're hoping that uh, we'll be able to get uh, a, a better management for the pain and a better management for the itch so that these incredible people, and they are incredible people, will have some sort of life given back to them because mm. they, at the moment their lives are restricted by so much because of the issues they have to live with. Um, and I feel very relevant to this because I spent so long of my life without skin on parts of my body. Yeah, of course. And, and the itch and the new skin arriving and itching and me scratching it and it bleeding and blistering. Mm. So I, I, I'm relevant to it in that regard, but at least there was always light at the end of my tunnel. Yeah. For them at this minute in time, it's very difficult because it's a very rare disease. Mm. Um, but they were called the butterfly children because they say their skin will break with the beat of a butterfly's wings. Um, and if you ever see Graham Souness on telly, the football ex-football player and commentator now, he mm. always has his little badge on the butterfly because he's a vice president. And, and we're very, very privileged to have him. Um, and... It, it, it's just one of these terrible conditions. Mm. Um, it's rare. There are 5,000 in this country, and there's always 5,000. Because when one leaves, another one arrives. Mm. But worldwide, we only know of about um, about a half a million. Wow. But, but the thing is, what we know about is the half a million. What we don't know is in the much poorer areas of life where they yeah. don't have access to any medicine mm. or treatment. Mm. or dressings, or sterile environment. Or doctors. Anything. Yeah. And they can't afford it. Even if they did have access, they can't afford it. No. So we don't know how many die at childbirth because of that. Yeah. So, you know, as we've seen with the pandemic, if you throw enough money at things, you will find a cure quickly. Mm. 
but because there are so few in reality and they will live for quite a while but it's the the problems they have living with it and mm. many other rare diseases as well mm. um, and small companies for them to be able to convince investors to put their money into it there's got to be some return at the end of the day they're not going to all do it because they're benevolent wonderful people mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. these investors want their return of their money yeah well the one thing that we can say is that because there's always 5000 there will always be a need for whatever medication but it just might take you longer to recoup your money mm-hmm. but you know at the end of the day if we could get governments and the the UN the world health organization to to specify that there should be a larger amount of money given to rare diseases mm. and you know in my case epidermolysis bullosa eb is um we we're in desperate need to be able to to get the money because yeah. the the charity i'm involved in helps families Mm-hmm. Helps them deal with it, helps the nurses, helps pay for nurses, helps pay for their training because it's not always covered by the NHS. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much that needs doing. Yeah. We'll put all the links on our website and also in the um, episode description notes as well. And we'll we'll also send you this episode, Simon, so that you can send it to whoever um, within the charity, if you like, as well. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, no problem. Simon, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely a joy to speak to you. And even though I'm your friend, I've learned lots about lots and lots and lots. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simon. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Lucy Lastic. Slack, <laughs> slack Alice. <laughs> I think we've got some uh, some um Nicknames there, Alice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I would be okay if those didn't stick. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Slack Thanks. Alice was made famous by a comedian, and I can't remember his name, though, but he was a comedian on telly, and he, he had a sidekick, a lady called Slack Alice. Um, and Loose Elastic was what my, my father used to call my wife. So, <laughs> yeah. so it's, just, it's just what it is. The girls. Sticks. Thank you ever so much for having me on. No problem. Thank you so much, Simon. Take care, both. Lovely to see you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Labelled Podcast. If you like the show, please rate, review and subscribe. You can follow us on social media at Labelled Podcast. Our thanks go to our editor, Adam Hall, our music composer, Maisie Crunden, and our graphic designer, Sarah Coley. We'll We'll see see you next time. time.